Now, last week, we're, as you know, we're in the book of Proverbs chapter 24, and last week, um, we looked at verse 10. We kind of singled out that verse, and we talked about what I think is one of the great lessons and principles of life, the, uh, uh, talking about the real test of our relationship with God. We all like to think in our minds and pretend we're great Christians. And many of you are. And I, I don't say that facetiously. I say that because I know in this church we've got some really solid people. But we all like to think of ourselves better than probably what we really are. And, uh, and it's a situation where uh, I told you last week the real test of your relationship with God is not what you think about yourself or what other people say about you or even think about you. The real test of our relationship with God will be how we stand or do not stand in the day of adversity. I took you through the book of Job, or took you to the book of Job, and you saw how Proverbs 24.10, about feigning in adversity, your strength being small, and how the book of Job go hand in hand. And the reason for that is, as doctrinally, as the book lays itself out prophetically, both Proverbs and the book of Job is a picture of the nation of Israel going through the tribulation period. They go hand in hand. And, uh, you know, it's their day of adversity. Job, as I said last week, he's on the ground seven days, persecuted by the devil, seven years in the tribulation period. The Job is in the land of Uz. That's exactly the Dead Sea area where the nation of Israel will be during the final years or months of the tribulation period. Job means persecuted by the devil. And in Revelation chapter 12 and Revelation chapter 13, you have the two paramount chapters of the devil's attack against the nation of Israel. Job has three friends who come and falsely accuse him. We talked about that. And when you'd go to Revelation chapter 16, verse 3, you'll find that the nation of Israel is up against three unclean spirits that do the exact same thing. At the end of Job's ordeal and his adversity, uh, he got back double everything that uh, he had lost in Job chapter 42, verse 10. And the Bible tells us in the book of Isaiah that the nation of Israel, at the end of their adversity, they get back double everything that they lost. Job is a type of the nation of Israel in the tribulation. Uh, look at James chapter 5, and it lays out sometime all of those things, and then it talks about right in the context of the tribulation the patience of Job, making the connection. Lastly, but certainly not least, we know that the Great Tribulation period <coughs> runs 42 months, and we'll find that there's 42 chapters uh, in the book of Job. So <coughs> we saw that last week, how vitally important <coughs> those two books go hand in hand. And, I, and, I, and, I, and we looked at it so clearly uh, that the practical application for you and for me out of Job's life and the book of Proverbs is that uh, uh, how we fail to stand in a day of adversity. And it comes back to the fact that our strength, the Bible says, is small. Now, that word strength is a key word. Uh, I went back to the Greek to find out exactly what it meant, <clears throat> and then I remembered that the Old Testament was in Hebrew. <clears throat> <clears throat> so I went back to the Hebrew, and uh, it was yashgabahakabu, which I didn't understand. So after all that, I just went back to the English. <clears throat> the word strength means that's your faith. What's your strong in? It's a key word. 
And we're told in, in chapter, uh, verse 5 of chapter 24 that we as God's people are to increase our strength. Every day you should be stronger in the things of God than you were the day before. <clears throat> and that strength will be defined as our faith. Basically, how well we can trust the promises and the principles of God when the tough times come. It means nothing to trust God when everything is fine. It means everything to trust Him when your world is falling apart. You know, Romans chapter 12, verse 3, talks about how that God gives us uh, the measure of faith. And let me explain that to you for a moment, because that's a key concept in the Bible. When you got saved, God gave you just enough faith to believe that Christ died for you on the cross. When you got saved, you did not have enough faith to trust God to go into the ministry yet, or go be a missionary, or uh, go back and be a great witness at work, or disciple somebody. Those are things that came in time <coughs> after you got saved. When he says he gives every man the measure of grace, it simply means this. When you got saved, God gave you just enough grace to understand and enough faith to understand that God died for you, that you were a sinner, and gave you enough faith by measure to exercise that and trust the Lord Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior. And then, as time goes on, you get discipled. You come to Bible study, you get into the Bible, somebody begins to work with you. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 5, now that you begin to exercise your senses. The Bible talks about in 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 8, now there's things that you add to your faith. And your faith begins to grow. What started out as a measure turns into a mountain that pretty soon in your life, or you should be, you ought to be able to stand for everything. This is why when you first get saved, you need to be very careful who you hang out with and who you're around. Amen. You need to be careful about old relationships and friendships because you don't have enough faith yet to be able to stand where you need to. And the first thing the devil's going to do is he's going to try to overwhelm you with everything that, uh, uh, to try to stop you. That's why church is so important. That's why our support groups and our prayer groups and, and the people in discipleship, they form a little team around you. They become the wall around you that will protect you till you get strong enough on your feet to man your own wall and do your own, uh, take care of yourself spiritually. And uh, so you exercise, the Bible says, your senses, and you get the ability to discern what's good and what's evil. You add to your faith, and there's seven things that we've talked about before that you add. And through that, you strengthen yourself through the principles of the Word of God. And this is where many of you are at right now. Many of you right now are in this process in your life. You're getting strength. You're strengthening yourself. I watch you grow. It's amazing, uh, you young, uh, young men and young ladies and you young couples, uh, how, how you're growing and how you're getting strong and how you take a stand uh, for things. It's absolutely incredible. And I appreciate so very much uh, the fact that you are so dedicated to that that you want to strengthen yourself every day. You know, every New Year's, out at any fitness center, but it's certainly true of the one that I go to, but it's true of any of them. The day after New Year's, the place is packed. 
Everybody has made their New Year's resolution now that they're going to they're gonna lose 20 pounds of ugly fat. My suggestion would be just cut their head off, but they never listen to me. They come to the place where the place is packed. You can, but you just be patient. In two weeks, all's back to normal. You know that's true of churches? It was true of camp. It'll be true when a great revival hits a church. Everybody will hit the altar. Everybody will get right with God. You're so fired up. But in two weeks' time, it's business as usual. And that's just the way it goes. And, you know, it's, it's rare today to find men and women who really want to stand. And they really want to take their stand for the Lord Jesus and, and stand with me in these last days to do what God has called us to do. Now, today... I want to look at verse 11 and 12. Well, we're going to add verse 10 back into the mix today because uh, I, I, I want you, I know I took verse 10 because I had something I wanted to specifically teach you there. But now I want to put it into the overall context of, of verses 10, 11, and 12. And here's what it says. If thou faint in the day of adversity, thy strength is small. That was our verse last week. If thou forbear to deliver them that are drawn unto death, and those that are ready to be slain. If thou sayest, Behold, we knew it not, does not he that pondereth the heart consider it? And he that keepeth thy soul, doth not he know it? And shall not he render to every man according to his works? Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. Pray your blessings upon today as we open up the Word of God and, and glean from here, Father, the great truths and the great principles. Help us. Help us these last days for our strength to be strong and not small. Help us to be able to stand. Help us to band together as a church to take our stand for the Word of God in a world, in a Christian world that has completely denied every aspect of the Bible and its truths. And we'll thank you. And we'll praise you. And I thank you for the men and women in this church that you brought our way and you continue to bring. Men and women who are no nonsense about the ministry, no nonsense about their relationship with God and the Bible. And all they want to do is be the very best they can be for you. And I thank you for that. And I pray your blessings upon all of this today and we'll give you the honor and the glory and the praise. In Jesus' name, for our sake we ask it. Amen. Now, let's get the doctrinal out of the way first. And again, I want you to understand everything about the book of Proverbs, and I've told you the three different applications. So, uh, but let's get the doctrinal down first, and then we'll see how it applies to you and me inspirationally. Now, here's what you got doctrinally, just so you know. Doctrinally, these verses will be about the nation of Israel going through the tribulation period, their day of adversity, and they are told not to faint. And in the tribulation period... <coughs> You probably already know that God has one last movement to reach the Gentiles that, that have been unreached yet within the tribulation period. And God, the Bible says in, in Revelation chapter 7, and again, he says it again in Revelation chapter 14, you'll find a definitive passage on it in Matthew chapter 22. And then you'll also find it in Revelation chapter 11 with Moses and Elijah. God calls out 144,000 men out of the nation of Israel. Now, the Bible says that they're virgin. The Bible says that there's 12,000 from each tribe. 12 tribes, 144,000. Let me stop here and tell you that the, every, all the Jehovah Witnesses think that they're part of the 144,000. 
Only the Jehovah Witnesses, who have been around since 1850, somewhere in there, could stretch 144,000 to 277,000 billion and try to get everybody in. 144,000. And the Bible says they're virgins. So if you're married, you're out of luck if you're a JW. But you're out of luck anyhow if you're a JW, so it doesn't really matter. So we're not talking about Jehovah Witnesses here, just so you know that. And next time a Jehovah Witness comes to your door and, and he says, uh, you ask him, ask him if he's part of the 144,000. If he says he is, ask him what tribe he's from. Put him on the spot. He won't know. If he says Chickawa or Sioux, uh, he doesn't know what he's talking about. But anyway, they're Jews. And God calls out out of 12 tribes, 12,000, 144,000, and he sends them to the Gentiles that are left on this earth to preach the gospel of the kingdom. Now, this is important. They're not preaching the gospel that you and I get saved under. Our gospel is the gospel of the grace of God that was given to Paul. The Bible says in Revelation there, Revelation, uh, that this is the gospel of the kingdom. Revelation 14, 6. It's called the everlasting gospel. This is not the gospel that you and I were saved under. This is a gospel that is preached to the Gentiles, Matthew chapter 22, by the 144,000, Revelation 7 and Revelation chapter 14. It's not the gospel that you and I were saved under. This is a completely one to the nation of Israel. This passage doctrinally will be uh, to them uh, to not faint, the 144,000, because they're under tremendous adversity. The Antichrist is trying to wipe them out. He's trying to kill them off. They're running all over the place. Their own families are turning against them. Their friends are turning against them. Just kind of like any Baptist church you'd find today. They're in a lot of problems. And they're going through this, and they're admonished not to faint. And he says that they're to, they're to keep the preach it unto the end. And, of course, Matthew chapter 25 tells us that the end uh, is the tribulation period. So now that we understand that, let's talk about it as it applies to you and to me. We have a great lesson here on what God has saved us for and called us to. And that is the giving out of the gospel. The gospel, the definitive passage on the gospel is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1 through 5, 6, 7, 8, somewhere in there. If you uh, want to know what the gospel is, that's where you go. That is the definitive passage on it. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about Proverbs chapter 11, verse 30. The fruit of the righteous is as a tree of life, and he that winneth souls is wise. And I told you that reproducing yourself in the life of somebody else is the number one thing that we are to do once we get saved. Giving out the gospel. Romans chapter 1 verse 1, Paul says that he was separated. He was called of God, and then he said he was separated unto the gospel of God. Now, I'm going to tell you what's wrong with Christianity today. Most churches want to get you separated from the world, which you should be, but then the preacher don't spend any time getting you separated to the gospel because the gospel of Jesus Christ in your life, once it changes your life, it ought to be the message on your lips to every man and woman that you meet. Amen. And we're going to talk about that today. And, uh, you know, and we're going to look at that. A wise man will uh, be a tree of life, the Bible says. Uh, it, it's, it's simply this. When you go to the book of Romans, and the book of Romans is an incredible book, Romans chapter 9 and Romans chapter 11. 
really deal with the nation of Israel. When he wrote the book of Romans, he wanted to give you and me, and remember now, Romans is your first book once you get past the historical books. You got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, then you got Acts, and then the doctrine for the church starts fully in Romans. And every chapter in the book of Romans, he lays out what the church is to believe and what the church is to understand. And when he gets to chapter 9, he takes the time to show us why Israel got in the mess that they're in, and then he uses as an example that we don't get in the same mess. When he gets into chapter 11, he now tells us that God is not finished with the nation of Israel, and he is going to restore the nation of Israel someday, and he's going to bring them back. But here's the illustration that he uses, and I want you to get a major piece of your Bible right now. This will help you. When you get into Romans chapter 11, verses 13 through 21, here's the example that he uses. He says, Christ is the olive tree. Christ is the olive tree. Fundamentally, Christ is the tree of life. Now, that's, a, that's, very, that's very significant into itself, because if the Bible says Christ is the olive tree, and you got back in the Old Testament, olive oil was a type of the Holy Spirit of God, and you find that uh, uh, the nation of Israel is always connected with an olive branch, and you know it, it's always connected with an olive tree. If somebody would ask me what the tree of life was back in Genesis, I wouldn't think it was an apple. If that tree of life is a picture of Christ, and Christ is the tree of life, and He is an olive tree, it doesn't take a seminary degree to figure out what it was. Now, the real mystery in that is how do they get those little red things in them? Every time I go to the grocery store and I walk down there, I love olives. And, uh, and I, 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 I just, I, I look at that and I always wonder. I, I know they're type of the tree of life. And I can't get the little red pimento is what it is. Why, how, why, why did he put it in in the first place? And what's the significance? And I just, you know, I spiritualize everything from my own spiritual edification. I just thought, you know what? That olive's Christ, that pimento's me. I'm in Christ. Now, you want to write that down. I, I want to see that in your Bible, Romans chapter 11, verse pimento. I want to see that. I, I don't know if that's true or not, but that, that helps me through the day when I go have to go grocery shopping. But anyway, you know, back in the Old Testament, they had a, what they, that seven-pronged candlestick. It's called a, a, a menorah. A menorah hospital is named after it. And when you look at that menorah or that candlestick uh, was given in a tabernacle, again, same picture. It's got a central uh, stock, which is the base for it, and then it's got seven uh, candlestick holders that you put seven candlesticks in. Those seven candles are the picture of the seven spirits of God back in Isaiah chapter 11, and the shaft or the, or the, the piece that's coming up that holds it is a picture of the tree, which is Christ, showing you that the Holy Spirit of God all comes from God and all comes from Christ. It's all through the Bible. And here's what he says in Romans chapter 11, verses 13 through 21. He says that, that Christ is the olive tree. And he says there were some natural branches on that olive tree. And the natural branches was the nation of Israel. And he says that they, but they didn't bear any fruit. <clears throat> they didn't do what they were supposed to do. So the Bible says that God broke off those natural branches. That's a picture of God 
calling the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, them not bearing fruit, and then in, in 70 AD, God being done temporarily with the nation of Israel. And he breaks off the natural branches. Then the Bible says he takes a wild olive tree branch and he grafts that into the tree. That wild olive branch is me and you. That's the Gentiles. And what he's saying there in that passage, and it's a tremendous piece of your Bible, what he's saying there that Christ is the olive tree, Israel was the natural branches, they didn't bear the fruit, so God broke off those branches, and then he took you and me, the wild ones, and grafted us in that we become part of the olive tree. That's a picture of your salvation. That's a picture theologically of what God did. And what a great illustration that is for you and for me. Now, the verse inspirationally deals with our own admonition. Not the faint in our day of adversity. I told you last week that what we go through, the struggles that we go through, many times are a great tool for God to use to be a witness to others. Because people are going to watch how you deal with it. You're going to go to work all day, all, all week long, and you're going to pass out tracts, and you're going to be a great Christian, and you're going to tell everybody about the Lord, and then one little thing come into your life, and you fall apart. They will judge your whole Christian life based on how you deal with adversity. You can lose everything that you built in your life if you don't have the strength to stand in the day when it's all coming down around your shoulders. And it will come. And you keep putting out the gospel of God's grace, and you don't faint. The adversity doesn't stop you. Wherever you find yourself, Paul says, in season, out of season, you preach the word. You put the word of God out. You allow God to use you, allow God to use me through the adversity that we face, not to miss the opportunities to see what God is doing. But we allow the very adversity which stops most people dead in their tracks to be a great witnessing tool for him. You know, the number one thing in our lives, and I said this already, and I'm going to say it again, the number one thing in our lives after salvation and learning the Bible will be for us to reproduce ourselves in others. And I can't stress this point enough. And you know what? People think, ah, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to reproduce myself uh, in somebody like he's saying. But you know, the truth of the matter is, we all reproduce ourselves in somebody, good or bad. There'll never be a time that your life, unless you're dead, and then probably even after that, as long as they remember you, that your life, good or bad, won't impact somebody. They're going to look at you and remember the good, or they're going to look at you and remember the bad. But it's a fallacy to think, well, I'm not going to reproduce myself in anybody. Yes, you will. You just won't do it God's way. Parents, you'll reproduce who you are in your kids. It's just that simple. You know, I hear this all the time. Well, you know, this kid or that kid made my kid this or made my kid. No, 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 no. Let me put it to you right down where the whales live. Let me tell you something. Your kid will mirror whatever your spiritual image is in your family. It's just that simple. Nobody will have more influence over your child's life unless you allow them to have it. I mean, unless somebody just came in when they were five years old and tied you up and put you in the closet for 30 years and never let you out and then, and then taught your child one way, I'm telling you something, it doesn't work that way. 
You are responsible for your child. Your child, making it or breaking it, will simply go back to your own spirituality where you're at. And you will either reproduce yourself in them as a strong, vibrant, soul-winning, Bible-believing Christian, or you'll reproduce them as a slug. It's true of a church. I'm not just picking on parents. I'm going to pick on pastors now. It's true of pastors and churches. A church won't go any higher than the spiritual temperature of the pastor. It won't. Hey, I, I, a guy can get up and talk about, you need to be excited about the Word of God. You need to be excited. If you're not excited about the Word of God as a pastor, nobody else will be. If it isn't the number one thing in your life, it'll never be in theirs. You know why? Because as a pastor, like a parent, you reproduce yourself into whoever you at. And that's just the way it is. You look at me, and I'm a reproduction of two men. Uh, one of them is Mel Sabaka, who, who uh, took me in when I was a young guy and, and, and taught me the ropes and gave me everything. The other one is Dr. Ruckman who really gave me the extension of my Bible to the way I have today. And, and I look back, at, and, and I've had people all the time that, that, that you ain't been around long enough, but I'll preach someplace and somebody will come up and say, man, you sound just like Ralph Malsabaka. I've had them come up and say, well, you sound like Dr. Ruckman. Now, I don't think I do, but you can't be around somebody like that and learn it and learn from them and not pick up some of their traits. But here's the danger. They were the two influences of my life, and they reproduced themselves in me. But I never lost my identity of Bob Alexander and who I was. I'm still the idiot I was before I met them. <laughs> I know a lot of guys that when they beat Ruckman and they go down to his school, they try to be a little Ruckman. They lose their identity. There was guys who did it with Sabaka. And they would, they would pick up their mannerisms. They'd do everything that they did. And, and they wanted to imitate them to a degree. And I understand that. I wanted to learn the Bible and imitate them when it came to learning the Bible, but I knew I was who I was. And I knew I could never be them, nor did I want to be them, because, hey, I'm enjoying being who I am. And it's one of those things where, but you will reproduce yourself. You know, a pastor says, well, my church is just a mess. That's because you're a mess. Pastor says, well, my church won't do anything for God. That's because you're not doing anything for God. Everything, and I mean everything, rises and falls on leadership. If I was satisfied just to let you be the status quo, you know what you'd be? You'd be the status quo. If I didn't lie a fire under your rear end every Sunday morning and hold the tools you defeat to and accountable, you'd be like every other church out there. You'd be whining and you'd be complaining and you wouldn't show up for Sunday morning. You wouldn't bring your Bible. Oh, I know. We'll just put the Bible verses up here so you don't have to bring your Bible anymore. I'll tell you what, we'll put the songs up here. You don't have to open a hymn though anymore. You know what we've done in Christianity? We have taken every personal, private blessing that God has for us in His Word and singing to Him and taking it away and stuck it up on a wall someplace. Old Mel used to get up when he started to preach many times. He'd say, okay. I want you to take your hymn books and I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 15. Everybody would laugh. They thought he made a mistake. And the crowd would chuckle across there and they said, what's the matter? And somebody would say, there's always a dumb person in the crowd that'll fall for anything. <laughs> somebody in the front would say, you made a mistake. You said hymn book instead of Bible. And Mel said, no, hymn book. This is a book that's all about him. 
He knew where it was. The people you work with. I watch you guys. I watch you men and you women down here. There's not hardly a time during the week that this church doesn't have three or four groups in it. Or you're meeting in somebody's home. Or you're meeting someplace. You know what you're doing? You say, I'm discipling them. I'm going through discipleship one. I'm going through discipleship. No, you're not. What you are doing is you're taking what God has given you and you're reproducing it in them. That's all you're doing. I mean, you may be doing this D1 or D2 or doing some special thing with them, but I'm telling you, when you, when you put yourself into people, good or bad, you will simply take what you've got and transfer it into them. And you'll produce either a wise man if you're wise, or you'll produce a fool if you're a fool. It's just that simple. It's not complicated. We like to make it complicated because we don't want to deal with how simple the outcome and how tragic the outcome is because most of God's people simply don't do it. And I want to tell you something. This church has a ton of strong men and women who, who do not faint. I, I'd put most of you up against anybody out there. I really would. Uh, and I just, I, sometimes I'm amazed at it. I mean, you are, you are something special. Uh, you know, I, I look at little things in the Bible, and, and I, God knows that we all like to eat. You ever notice how Jesus always used examples about, he wanted to get somebody's attention. I mean, when you said, I want to I wanna open up a, a verse here, nobody, but you say, okay, I'm going to talk to you about bread. Everybody's paying attention, especially if you're hungry. Or he says, he used about the fishes. He used, he used food all the time. Now, part of that is because there's a great banquet coming that we're all going to be part of if you're saved this morning. So I get that. But he wanted to identify people with food. I mean, he did. I mean, I, I, I go back there in the Psalms, and he says Christ was the apple of his eye. Now, he picked apple. Why didn't he say peach? Why didn't he say watermelon? Why didn't he say cabbage? Why was it apple? Because apple meant something. And when he says that Christ is the apple of mine eye, he's saying that the, the best fruit you can have is an apple because it represents God in the Bible and the Word of God, and he says Christ was the apple of my eye. Well, I, I, think, I look at you, I think of food. Now, I like hot dogs. I do. You had hot dogs the other night there. It was great. Those were good hot dogs. I, I, Will had nothing to do with cooking them, but they were really good. I want to tell you something. Those were good hot dogs. You know, in most Baptist churches, they'll have a banquet, charge you seven, eight dollars to come, and you'll get hot dogs. The pack. Oh no, we, I went to a church that way where that's all they ever had was dogs. They charge you ten dollars to come. We don't charge you anything, and we give you better than hot dogs. The pastor thought we were all stupid. He called them tube steaks. They were far from tube steaks. But I like hot dogs. I go to a ball game, I want a hot dog. I, I, I tell you, a good hot dog is hard to beat. But I'll tell you what's better than even a hot dog. And the best part, of, the best thing, in a, best, the, the epitome of a hot dog is a corn dog. <laughs> when I look at you, I, I just think of food. I, I look at you and I, I, I think, you guys are the lone you, you guys are the lone corn dogs in a world of regular weenies. That's who you are. 
You're something special. Yeah, put that in your Bible. Corn dog, C-O-R-N-D-O-G. You're the lone corn dog in a world of just regular wieners. Because you're special. Because you know how to stand. Because you're strong. You don't faint. And yet, you're all different. I know, you'll never eat another corn dog again now at the fair that you won't think of yours truly. That's my point. That's what Jesus did. He used things that every time you took one of them, you'd remember what he said. And that's a key in getting people to remember. That's a key to uh, using things like that because you're all different. But you all have something different to uh, to contribute to this church. And when we all have something different and we all work toward the same goal, and that goal ultimately, fundamentally, is winning people to Christ. I mean, everything that we do. We have a softball league, and softball is fun. But you know what? That softball league is for one person reason. That's to bring people in that are lost or need a church and then invest into their life and, and, and get them saved. We do the same in volleyball after the first of the year. And it's the same thing. Everything that we do, I tell them, you know, in most churches they say, we're going to have a we're going to have a softball team and we're going to play in the league and uh, here's what I want to do. We're going to have a softball team and we're going to get people on a team and then we're going to find a way to minister to them. I, I don't look at it that way. I tell my captains and co-captains, you're going to have a ministry and then you're going to find out how to play softball. You just reverse the process because it's people. I could care nothing of who wins the championship. I know you do, and I, that's good for you because you, you guys are, you, I, I like that. I like the fact that you want to win. I, but at the end of the day, when I, it's not about winning the game. It's about winning someone to Christ. It's about getting another family in this church. It's about getting the kids in that need to be saved and get to come to camp. It's about reaching out to people and helping them, no matter what we do. Uh, all of our get-togethers, and my goodness, I mean, we, 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 the Methodist Church got nothing on us with, with, with chicken dinners. We have them all the time. <laughs> Everything we do, I don't care what it is, at the end of the day, we all have one goal, and that is if there's somebody there that is lost or somebody there that is unchurched and needs something, we're all there for them. And that is the very strength of this church. And you're amazing. And, you know, it, it, uh, it's, it, it doesn't lie in me anymore, but it, now it lies in you and how you take what you're given and then you reproduce yourself into others with it. You reach out to them and then you reproduce yourself in them. And it's, it's, it's happening all over, the, not only Kansas City, it's happening all over the country. We got, we got people in Minnesota. We got our group up in Lincoln. We got our group down in Wichita. We got our group up in Washington State. We got our group down at Camp Lejeune in a Marine Corps base. We got our group out in Idaho. We got a group up in Peoria, Illinois. And it, it, it's just where, where your impact in people's lives, people who need the Bible, who care, you see what needs to be done, and you reproduce what God has given you here in the life of somebody else. That is what the ministry is. And I said this a couple of weeks ago. You know, we get the idea that we talk about soul winning and sitting down with somebody and running them down the Romans road, you know. We're sitting down and winning somebody to Christ. And I get that. 
But it's not just sitting down and opening a Bible and winning them to Christ. Soul winning is a lifestyle. It's what you become. We get, there's no class for it. Oh, I can teach you a class to run you through the Roman road or the Matthew Turnpike or Paul's high, whatever. But it isn't just about that. It's about you entering into a lifestyle that your life is so infused with the principles of Christ that everybody you meet, you infect. And if your Christian life and testimony isn't infecting, then it's contaminated. That's what it really is. It's about your willingness to invest your own self into somebody else's life. It isn't about just parroting the words out of Romans Road. Every Christian ought to witness, and sometimes you should even use words. But the real witness will be how you live your life and what you go through in life. And it's about your willingness to invest your life, your own self, you know, the Macedonian Christians over there in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 are the two greatest definitive chapters in the Bible on our giving. And it's really not talking about money. And it says in verse 5, talking about the Macedonian, Paul bragging on them, and he says, And this they did, not as we had hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. They gave themselves first to the Lord. That was the first thing that they did. That was the first step. And I want to tell you something. When you decide in your heart, when you decide in your mind, and you put everything else aside, and you're done now with all this stuff, and you decide that you're going to put the Lord first in your life, you will be a soul winner. And I'm not saying you're going to win somebody to Christ. There were guys that wrote books and used to do seminars telling them how to win out of the next five people you meet, how to win three of them to Christ. You know what that does? That just takes the Holy Spirit of God completely out of it. You learn a set of, you learn a set of tricks. You learn a, a set of marketing skills. You learn to say the right thing to draw them in. And you think that's of God. I'll tell you what. You'll never be everything that God wants you to be. I'll never be everything that God wants to be. Do we first give ourselves to the Lord first? Then it says over there in Acts chapter 13, verse 2, the church at Antioch, the model church for you and me. It lays out everything we're to be. And you know what it says first? It says that they ministered unto the Lord. You couldn't find 10 Christians in this city, outside this church, that could tell you what that means to minister to the Lord. You couldn't find a commentary anywhere on any godless Christian bookstore in this city that would take you and tell you in Acts chapter 13, verse 2, what it means to minister unto the Lord first. But, oh, we're ministering. Look at me. Look at me go. Well, you're wasting your time if you're not ministering to the Lord first. And there's four ways in that Bible that you minister to Him first. Remember, first off, ministry is being something. It isn't doing anything. And when you minister unto the Lord, you know what He does? He takes that and He, he reproduces that into somebody else's life. It isn't about what we do or how good I am or laying out the verses and how I cover all of the bases. It's about, have you given yourself to Him first 
for the number one goal that he saved you for was reproducing yourself in the lives of others. And then have you spent your time ministering to him first so then you can minister to others? Now look at verse 11. If thou forbear to deliver them that are drawn unto death and those that are ready to be slain. Now we're going to talk about our responsibility to a lost world. Ezekiel chapter 33 verses 1 through 7 is a great illustration of what your life and my life should be in a New Testament format, even though it's written in an Old Testament context. Let me read it for you. 33.1, Ezekiel. Again, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, speak to the children of my people, and say unto them, When I bring the sword upon the land, if the people of the land take a man of their coast and set him for their watchman, if when he seeth the sword come upon the land, he bloweth the trumpet and warn the people, then whosoever heareth the sound of the trumpet and taketh not warning, if the sword come and take him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and took not warning. His blood shall be upon him. But he that taketh warning shall deliver his soul. But if the watchman see the sword come and blow not the trumpet, and the people be not warned, if the sword come to take any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at the watchman's hand. So thou, son of man, I have set thee a watchman unto the house of Israel, therefore thou shalt hear the word of my mouth and warn them from me. And I want to tell you something, the day you got saved, God set you a watchman over his body of the church. You're a watchman this morning. You see God's judgment coming. You see the hand of God in America, in every aspect of this world. You got the trumpet, the message of God, and we need to blow that trumpet and warn the people. And when you don't, the blood is on your head. When you do, it's on them. And in our text today, chapter 24, 10, 11, and 12, you will find seven things that we want to remember in our commission to reproduce ourselves and others after we get saved. And remember now, John 15, 16 says, God, you've all got your ordination papers if you've been saved. And those ordination papers say that God has ordained you, that you bring forth fruit, but then that your fruit should remain. Now, the first thing I want to tell you, and we talked about this last week, you should be well aware of this by now, but I want to start off with this. The day of adversity will come in your life. The day of adversity will come in your life. At some time, some point in this time, it will come. I was telling somebody the other day, you know, I was proud of myself, the fact that I was 65 years old, 64 years old, and never had a broken bone, never had any major, never been in the hospital, never, did, never had any real problems in anything. My health was good and all that stuff. And suddenly when I hit 66, 67, now I've been in the hospital four or five times. I keep, I'm friends with the emergency room doctor. I mean, it, it, they know everything about me from my kidney stones up to, I mean, it's just, we're old friends. I mean, it's just like everything fell apart. And I'm telling you, you may be in your health right now and think you can jump tall buildings with a single bound, but there's a day coming when you won't. 
And you may think your life is great and you got everything going your way, and maybe it is, but there's a day of adversity coming in your life. And the whole world is going to watch to see if you, the Christian, is going to stand whether your strength is small or whether it's great. And they'll be watching. Second thing. And in that day, the child of God is to keep on sowing. Galatians 6, 9 says, He tells us that not to be weary in well-doing. For in due season we shall reap if we faint not. You got to stay doing it. You got to make adversity your friend. You got to realize that it's just part of it and it isn't going to stop you. You've got to look above the circumstances because you're living above the circumstances and you've got to now apply the very principles and the promises that you sat in church for years and years and years and went right over your head. The third thing. We are told no matter how dark the clouds will get and brother, <laughs> they will get dark sometimes. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 1 through 6 we are told that in spite of that, we're to cast our bread upon the waters. We're to put the Word of God out. And the Bible says you'll find it after many days. That's because Isaiah 55, 11 says the Word of God never returns void. He says, cast thy bread upon the water. He says, be not afraid of the winds and the clouds. Well, I'm telling you, man. When you start showing the Word of God, the adversity is going to come in and the devil is going to do everything he can to get you to faint. He's going to make the clouds so dark. He's going to make the wind howl so bad. You forget that even though the devil can bring the clouds and the devil can bring the wind, when he did that to the disciples in that little boat, all it took was Jesus showing up and the wind ceased, the waves were calm, and the clouds were gone away. I never, I never worry about the clouds that come into my life. You know why? Because that Bible says that Jesus is coming back in the cloud, and I'm just hoping he's up there. Amen. The fourth thing. Our strength should be able to stand the test. In Acts chapter 20, verses 27 through 32, he talks about all that they went through. And he says in verse 32, God through all the adversity will build you up to an inheritance. There's a purpose for the days of adversity we go through. There's a strengthening in them. There's something that God wants us to see, understand, and ultimately something God wants us to be. The fifth thing. Because you and I have followed the instructions of Proverbs chapter 24, verse 5, and we've increased our strength. We added some things to our faith. We grew spiritually. We got to the place where we went from one spiritual level to another. Now when the adversity comes, we see it for what it is. It's just like when we were all little kids. We were afraid of the dark. We had to go to sleep with the light on. Now when you're an adult, you don't have to go to sleep in the dark. You're not afraid of the dark. And you don't need a light on. You know why? Because you got a 357 right in a nightstand. <laughs> the sixth thing. 
And if you don't strengthen yourself, a faulty strength will fail in a day of adversity. Proverbs 24.10. You'll fall. You'll fail. You'll get swallowed up. I'm sure it's true of every church. Well, I know it is. But you see it in our own church. You'll see people that they've been around churches, around our church for ever 15, 16 years we've been here. They've, they make their, they're, like a, they're like a comet. They make their passage every three or four years through the church. They'll come in, they'll stick around for three or four weeks, and then they're gone again. And then three or four years, they'll come back, and they'll want to do what's right, and they're all sorry about this, and then they're gone again. Their whole cycle is just a, a, an orbit around and through the church and then back to the world. They get themselves, every time they come back, you can see that they got themselves a little deeper, a little darker in the world and the problems in their life. And pretty soon, there's no getting out of it. And yet you see people like that, and I, I feel truly sorry for people like that. Uh, on one hand, I understand that they're saved. I, I really believe that most of them are, and they're saved, but they have lost every battle in life. Some of them I've known since they were 15, 16, 17 years old. Some of them I've known for 20 years. And I can say one thing about them in all the years that I've known them. They have lost every battle that ever came their way in life. And every time they'll go for a while and then they want to get back on it, they'll come back in, they'll get involved, they'll come this, they'll start to get discipled, they'll start to do this. And then second verse, same as the first, right down that road again. An old boyfriend will show up, an old girlfriend will show up, something will happen in their lives. <clears throat> I've seen them come in, you know, and, and the place where they listen to you and, they, and you try to help them and then some guy or some girl comes in their life who counters what we're saying here, you know. Bye-bye. And every time you go through that cycle, you just get a little farther out in your orbit. You know why that is? It's because you have never buckled down and changed your life and committed your life to change. Life Changing issues in your life is not just saying, I'm going to change. Changing issues in your life takes your commitment to change. And that means you have to take it seriously. The seventh thing, and through the strength that you have increased and, and got from the Lord and the Word of God, you'll keep on witnessing right to the very end. Psalms 126, verse 5, we're told that they that sow in tears shall reap in joy. You may go through some tough times in your life and there may be some darkness in the cloud, but you can hold the line and you can stay faithful with it and you can stay in it no matter what and you not let the circumstances override you and push you out. You may go through some tough time and you may do some sowing in tears, but I guarantee you, you'll reap in joy. Now, along with that, those seven things, you want to remember this. And I know you know this. The Christian has the power of deliverance with the Word of God. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, he told the disciples, and he's speaking to us, that all power is given unto you in heaven and earth. 
A lot of people get confused about a verse found in Matthew 18, 18, where he says, Verily I say unto you, whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I get that question a lot of what he means. And I understand, if you don't familiar with where you're at with it, I can, I can see how that could be confusing. But here's what he's saying. You as a child of God, if you're saved and you have the Word of God, you have the power to deliver people through that Bible. You sit down with somebody and go through and show them they're a sinner, show them what they need to do, show them that Christ died for them, and open up the Word of God and show them what He's done or by your life, and they reject it, and they walk away from you, you know what you've done? You've bound them to their sin through the Word of God. Nothing about you through the book God gave you. You take that same book and through your life, Somebody comes to you, they see the difference in your life, they sit down with you, and they ask you why you're different. You open up the Bible and show them. You don't tell them what God will do for them. You show them what God has done for you. And you lay that thing out, and they say, boy, I want that. And you win that person to Christ. You know what you've just done through the power, the authority, the Word of God? You have loosed them from their sins. Had nothing to do with you. It has to do with the Bible has the power and you have it in your hands with the message of God to bind and loose the sins of people by you showing them the greatest message the world has ever seen that Jesus came and died, was buried, and rose again the third day. Because of that, we don't have to live in our sins any longer. We have the message of deliverance. And found in the book of Romans, in particular Romans chapter 10, will be the message of that deliverance. I find it very instructive. I told you how the book of Romans lays itself out. The outline of Romans is crucial to understand the book. When I hear to hear somebody talk about the book of Romans, I can tell in about 30 seconds if they know what they're talking about or not, simply because Romans is such an easy book to understand if you follow the breakdown structure of how God intended the book to be laid out. You don't, and you're on your own. And I told you, it's the, it's the book right after the book of Acts, and Martha, you have the, four, uh, the five uh, historical books, and then, bang, you get the Romans. Nothing historical about Romans. It's doctrine for the church. In Romans, he has everything that the church is to believe, everything that the church is to know, everything that every aspect of every every fiber of the church is found in the book of Romans. And the key to it is how you break it down. In chapter 1, he tells you why the Jews are, got into a terrible mess. We need to know that. In chapter 2, he shows us why the Gentiles are in the mess. In chapter 3 and 4, he tells you why that, that what they go about doing will never solve their mess. In chapter 5, you know what he is in chapter 5? In chapter 5, he tells you the only thing that will solve that mess is Jesus Christ dying on the cross. And then chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, he lays it out. And it's no accident that in chapter 9, he shows you how Israel got messed up in chapter 9. Then you have chapter 10, which is the great chapter of the gospel going to you and me, the Gentiles. And then he goes back to chapter 11 to show you that even though the Jews got busted off and the Gentiles came in, chapter 11 now, he's going to restore them. Incredible. It follows right the line of doctrine taught through the whole Bible. But Gentile salvation is... is Romans chapter 10. Number 10 in your Bible will be the number of the Gentiles. The first Gentile kingdom is found in Genesis 10.10. 10. Noah was a father of the Gentile. In Adam and lineage, he's the 10th from Adam. 
You'll find over there that uh, 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 the gospel calls in Luke chapter 10. You'll find here the mi uh, missionary calls in Luke chapter 10. You'll find here that the salvation call for Gentiles is in Romans chapter 10. You'll find that everywhere you go, Romans chapter 10 is where you come back. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. Starts right there. And the message is clear. Acts chapter 13, verse 38 through 39. I mean, we have the message of deliverance. You have it inside you if you're saved. You have it in your Bible if you have one. And the message is clear, 38, 39, Acts chapter 13. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him all that believe are justified from all things which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. Praise the Lord. Amen. When he came down, he did what the law couldn't do. When he came down, he'd do what Moses could never do and all the sacrifices never could do. He saved us from our sins. And you got that message. It's exciting for you. Just isn't exciting for you to tell somebody else about it. And we as God's people, we hold this message. The gospel of the grace of God. The fact that Christ came and died and did for us what the law could never do. Have these, <laughs> have these idiots out there that says, well, I, 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 I just don't know how God, could ever, how God could ever send a person to hell. Well, you inflated egotist. Let me tell you something. I don't have no problem understanding why God could send a man to hell. My problem is why God won't take somebody like me to heaven. Amen. You're thinking pretty hot of yourself that you could, we all deserve to burn in hell. Amen. Every one of us here deserves to scream our lungs out in the lake of fire. Thank God he saw that, loved you enough that came down and gulled you out of that fire. Now, how about you loving somebody enough that you'll do it for them? Amen. The Bible says in Jeremiah chapter 48, verse 10, Cursed be he that doeth the work of the Lord deceitfully. And cursed be he that keepeth back his sword from blood. The sword's the word of God. <clears throat> you know what you do with Chris as a Christian? And people aren't going to like you for this. This is why people don't like me. You stick them. You see, I, I, the problem with most pre preachers and most churches, they don't have a sword, they got a butter knife. You can't stick anybody with a butter knife. They got an NIV or an ASV or some other piece of godless trash out of the pit of hell, and they just go around <coughs> nudging people with it. <laughs> Bible says, cursed be your preaching. Cursed be the man or the woman that, that doesn't draw blood with a sword that God gave you. You say, well, I don't like the message you preach. You'll love it a lot if you got saved and it kept you from going to hell. And I'll tell you what, if you reject it and wind up in a lake of fire, you'll wish every time for all of eternity that you would have loved that message instead of hating it. That book, that book will stick you. Now, you know what? You can be saved, and it'll still stick you. I mean, I know, this is true of any church. Some of you are getting stuck this morning. That's good. I'm getting stuck this morning. 
You got to hear it once. I had to work on it all week. There's places in there I wanted to go liberal. I threw the corn dog thing in there so you'd love me. Because I know you like corn dogs. You know, there's a great illustration in the Bible, and I want to tell you this story. I got time. There's a great story in the Bible about getting stuck with the Bible. Turn back to the book of Judges. Judges chapter 3. And this is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Uh, you wouldn't think that it had anything to do with New Testament soul winning, but uh, that's because you're educated beyond your intelligence and your degrees are getting in front of your way of reading the Bible. This is one of the greatest practical portions anywhere in the Word of God that shows you what soul winning should be, what it is, or what God intends you to do with it. Now, you got two guys here. You got a guy by the name of Ehud. Ehud is a deliverer. Then you got a guy by the name of Eglon. Eglon's a fat guy who is a Moabite who is, cares nothing about the things of God. And it's a picture of, of, of Ehud, the prepared soul winner who's got the word of God, going to a fat man, fat with the world, Eglon, who's got everything and he's got a message for him. Now follow along here. But when the children, verse 15, but when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised them up a deliverer. Now, if I were you, and this is just what I would do if I were you, I'd take your little, a little, uh, I mean, you're going to know who it is. Take your little verpitograph pen and, and cross that name out there and, and put your name in. Because God wants you to be the deliverer. He's got some fat people he wants to send you to. In the world. Ehud, the son of Gerah, a Benjaminite, a man left-handed, and by him the children of Israel sent a present unto Eglon, here he is, the king of Moab. But Eglon made him a dagger which had two edges. Ooh. Now somebody said one time that, uh, that well, that the Bible says that it, it's a two-edged sword, it's a dagger. And our answer is that's because all we had was a New Testament. You can stick them with the New Testament. New Testament's much smarter than a regular Bible. you get it later. It's okay. <laughs> he made him a dagger that had two edges of a cubit length. So that dagger is about that long. It's like a Roman short sword. And he did gird it under his raiment upon his right thigh. Now, there's a reason why the Bible says that he's left-handed, but he puts the sword on his right side. But we don't have time to get into that this morning. The fact that he's left-handed means that he's still a sinner, but the fact that he puts it on the right side means that he's right with God because the right side is all... It's a beautiful picture. You're still a sinner, but you got a book on the right side will get the right message out. Okay. And he brought the present unto Eglon, king of Moab, and Eglon was a very fat man. Picture of a worldly man. And when he had made an end to offer the present, he sent away the people and bare the present. But he himself turned again from the quarries that were by Gilgal and said, I have a secret errand unto thee, O king, uh, who said, Keep silence. And all that stood by him went out from him. So he shuts the situation up where it's just him and him. Go do a little witnessing here. And he says, And Niglon came unto him and was sitting in a summer parlor 
which he had for himself alone. And he had said, I have a message from God unto thee. And he rose out of his seat. So he sets the scenario up. And then he says, I have a message from you from God. So what you do is you have your dagger on your right side. Yeah, you're still a sinner. You go to somebody who's fat with the world. And uh, you say, I got a, you get him alone. And you get in a circumstance, right? And you say, I got a message from God from you. And uh, he rose out of his seat. Verse 21, and Ehud put forth his left hand and took the dagger from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. Now he stabs him in the belly. Oh, let's go on here. And the heft, that's the cross part of the sword. The heft also went in after the blade and the fat closed upon the blade. This guy was really fat. And the fat closed upon the blade so that he could not draw the dagger out of his belly. And the dirt came out. Now that's a great picture. Because everything we know about the Bible and everything we know about the message of God is found in those last two verses. He put forth his left hand and took the dagger from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the heft went in after the blade and the fat closed upon the blade that he could not draw the dagger out. You know why? Because once you stick them, they stay stuck. He couldn't pull that dagger out because you stick somebody with the word of God, they may reject you, but for 20, 30, 40, the next 50 years, they're going to remember the day you stuck them. You know why? Because once you stick them with the sword, you can't get it out. It stays in you. And he come up there and he stuck that thing in there. He says, I got a message for you. And he nailed him. And when he stuck that thing in, it went up over that thing and he tried to pull it out and he says, it's yours. He couldn't get it out. (laughs) That's a great picture. No matter what the person responds to the message that you give them, let me tell you something. When you use your sword to draw blood and you stick them, they say stuck. Dr. Ruckman used to tell the story that he was preaching on the street one time. And uh, he had finished his preaching. And there was a bunch of boys down there. And he went down about a block and a half to a, to a, a drugstore to go in and get a lemonade. Now to cool down his throat from preaching. And uh, he said, I was sitting there drinking that thing. And a guy walked in in a business suit. And uh, somebody said, how you doing? Sam knew him. And he said, oh, you must be born again. You must be born again. I don't know if I've been even born the first time. He'd been walking down that street. And one of those kids had been preaching on the street, stuck him. Now, you know what? That guy lived to be 120 years old. He'll remember those words, you must be born again. He Maybe he'll never get born again, but he will remember those words. You know why? When that book, that sword, when you draw blood, that cut doesn't heal. When you stick that dagger in and it goes in and its fat closes around it, you don't pull it out. And then you know what else it said? And the dirt came out. You know how to get the dirt out of your life? You know how to get the drainage ditch going of dirt out of your world? You know how to get the dirt out of your life this morning? Just get stuck with that book. And the dirt will come out. That's some picture you got there, man. And God is going to hold us accountable... Because we do have the message of God. And every, I'm going to tell you something, especially you young kids, every talent you got, every ability you have, everything that you have about you that is a good thing, every quality, every ability, every talent, everything you got, God gave you for one reason, and that is because God wanted you to get saved and get the message and give it out. 
If you use it for something else, that's fine. But I'll tell you what, you better make sure you keep a good disproportion that you're doing it more for God than you are for the things that you want to do. Because that's why he gave it. And the same God that gave it to you, he can take it away as fast as he gave it to you. Because there is one who keeps our soul. Jude 24, keeps you from falling and will protect or will present you faultless with exceedingly joy. And he ponders our heart attitude, Romans chapter 8. And the Bible says he will render to us according to our works. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13. Every man's work shall be made manifest for the day shall declare it. Now look at verse 12. Here it comes. If thou sayest, behold, we knew it not, doth not he that pondereth the heart considereth it? And he that keepeth thy soul, doth he not know it? And shall not he reason to every man according, uh, uh, reason every man according to his works? Let me tell you something. There isn't a Christian on this planet that could pretend that you don't know the fate of unsaved people. There isn't a saved person on this planet today that can feign ignorance about the fact in that day that you didn't know there was a lake of fire and unsaved people were going to it. Verse 10 and 12 deals with one of the most crucial issues of our day, the absolute refusal of American Christians to witness and tell unsaved people that there's a hell to shun and they're going to wind up in the lake of fire someday. The indifference of God's people to a lost world is unimaginable. It's unbelievable. Old Bob Jones Sr. used to say when he had a seminary down there before he died, he said, I'd like to take the last 24 hours of seminary training and take every young man that's called to be a preacher, a called to be a worker, a called to be evangelist, and I'd like to suspend him over the bottomless pit, the pit of hell, for 24 hours and just let him swing back and forth and hear the cries and see the agony and see the torment and then turn him loose on that world. It'd make a difference. But you know what? You can see it from the book without ever going there. We don't want to see it. We've been so mesmerized by television. I mean, you watch television all day long, and some of you kids do, and some of you parents do too. I mean, you can see 148 rapes, 275 murders, uh, 340 child abductions. I mean, it's endless. It's just endless. You see some of the most grotesque, bloody murder people die, and after a while you get desensitized to that. And when you try to talk about somebody dying and going to hell and burning a lake of fire, it doesn't mean that much to you. Because you saw worse than that on television. I'm telling you. Don't you tell me about it. I've limited my TV to Bambi. (laughs) Psalm 142 verse 4 is one of the most powerful verses in all the Bible that shows our indifference to unsaved people all around us and our forsaking the message that God has for us to give to them. He says in Psalms 142.4, I looked on my right hand and behold, there was no man that would that know me. Refuge failed me. No man cared for my soul. And I want to tell you, boy, the key words in there, no man would know me. Oh, we're not going to spend the time to get to know somebody to find out what their really needs are. We're going to throw you a track, or we're going to give you this, and then we're going to just let God deal with it. Or we're going to win you to Christ so fast and never see you again. I want to tell you something. I want to tell you something. That verse says, and no man would know me. 
Nobody today wants to spend the time to get into somebody's world to find out what they're really all about. He says, I looked on my left. No man cared for my soul. We have been commanded to witness. We have been commanded to warn people that they will die in their sins and wind up in the lake of fire. And yet we pretend that we don't know. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20 through 24 says that God will forgive the transgressions of men. That's our message. And Acts chapter 20, verse 26 and 27 said, Paul said that he was free from the blood of all men. You know why? Because everywhere he went, they knew where he was. And they knew what he believed. Not by just what he said, but the lifestyle that he lived. And you can never open a word of your mouth and live a life for God, and never say a word, and people will be drawn to you, and they will ask you what's different about you, instead of you have to do, tell them what's different about you. And 95% of God's people, they refuse to do it. 85% of the pastors refuse to do it. They don't want to ruin their social status. They don't want people to get upset. They don't want to offend anybody. They don't want to, they don't want to face rejection. Uh, pastors don't want to hurt their offerings by preaching the truth because they got to have all the money to pay for the monuments that they're building. And verse 12 clearly says that in that day when you stand and I stand before God, we'll not be able to plead our ignorance. No man will say, well, Lord, I didn't know. We have the message of God. We have the power of God. We have the witness of Spirit of God inside us that burdens God's heart. is burning in us, and we quench it. And a great truth, God will not hold you accountable for what you did find out or what you didn't find out. God will hold you accountable for what you could have found out, but you chose not to. Reproducing in others what God has done in us, reproducing in our families, in our daughters, in our sons, in our children, making sure that what we put into them is going to carry on what God has put into us. In our church, making sure that when you work with somebody, making sure that every day, every Sunday, every Thursday night, when I stand in this pulpit, I give you exactly what the Word of God says. Not what I think, not my opinion, but what the book says and let the chips fall where they may. If I'm a pitcher and you're the batter, I'm going to throw that ball right across the plate waist high where you can take a swing at it. reproducing yourself in the people that God gives you. You get discipled, you disciple somebody else. You go through DSU, you do with somebody else. You get into the people ministry and help me with people. You get into the Bible Institute this Saturday. You start, get the tape, get caught up. Jump into that thing. Get, start letting God use you, prepare you for the day of adversity that's going to come in your life. Too many times the the poem that I heard many, many years ago will ring out in that day. On the brink of eternity I stand, lost and forsaken, my time is at hand. Oh, how I wish that I would have been told, but no man, no man cared for my soul. 
The greatest mark of your relationship with God is you caring for the souls of others the way he cared for your soul. It's just that simple. Understanding what he did for you and then realizing that he has called you, ordained you, that you do it for somebody else. You take what God has given to you, taking what God has given to me. I don't deserve to be where I'm at. I don't deserve to have any of the blessings of God in my life. But I'm just going to simply tell you this. The bottom line is this. When I got saved, when I got saved, I simply wanted to do for others what God had done for me. I've not always done it well. I've not always done it perfect. But I want to tell you, one way or the other, I always did it. And I never lost sight of the fact that the only thing I have to give anybody is nothing good from me. The only goodness that I have to give anybody is the goodness that God has given me. And that has to go to you. And that is the only thing you have to give. They don't need what you have. They don't need who you are. They don't need your personality. What they need is the goodness and the severity of God that he has put in you that you can reproduce in them. And when God gives you somebody or you see somebody, you gravitate to that person because you do and realize and understand that you're doing for God what he would do if he was here himself. You're feeding the 5,000. You're doing this. You're healing the sick. You're, you're healing the lame. Uh, all in a spiritual sense. People who are hurting. People who are broken. And people who are starving to death. We have people come into this church that are saved. They're absolutely starving to death. I was on the phone for about 40 minutes last night from a guy up in New York by the name of Tony. And Tony, if you're listening today, God bless you. I enjoyed our conversation. Called me out of the blue. Said, you know what, Bob? There's no churches up here. And he says, your website's all I got. And he said, you know what? He said, I believe that Bible all my life. He said, but there ain't no place up here to go to church. He says, I hang on to everything you guys are doing down there. And he says, I just got a couple of questions. And we talk through the Bible. I get that two or three times a week. And there's people out there that are starving to death. There's people that come to this church that are good people, but they've been in a dry land for a long time. And they need the refreshing drink of the cool water from the wells of Gilead. They need, the, they, need the, they need the food of the manna from heaven to give them supernaturally what they need. And you know what? You're the ones that can do it. Me up here, this is just a big commercial. That's all it is. This is a big commercial telling everybody what is out there waiting for them. My corn dogs. It's just a big commercial. I'm, I, I run a car dealership and I'm telling you that that Fords or Chevys or Pontiacs is the best call. I'm telling you to come to my dealership and we'll give you the best deal you can. All I'm doing is telling people and trying to point to people that the greatest asset that they could ever have is in that book and the greatest people on the planet that have that book is you. Because you're special. There's God's people who think they're spiritual. They don't like us. They don't like me. They don't like you. And yet they've never won a soul to Christ in their life. They wouldn't walk across the street. They pretend themselves to be so spiritual, and they don't like anybody that is spiritual, but at the end of the day, they're going to win their whole life, never telling one person and winning one person or investing their life in one person, and they're supposed to be the good guys.